0: Father, we do ask that you'd speak. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would overcome everything in me and about me that would hinder that. pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, you'd also just enable each one of us to receive what you have for us today that would impact our lives. We'd be more like Jesus and your church would accomplish what you would have for us to do in these strategic days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if it was your goal to change the world, how would you go about it? What would be your strategy? How about if it was God's goal, who is all-wise and all-powerful, if it was his goal to change the world, what would be his strategy? What if God was to become a man and walk this earth with the goal of changing the world? What would be his strategy? Well, Of course, God did become a man in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, and it was his goal to change the world, and he did have a strategy. So what was it? Well, Let's just look at that today because we do know that Jesus took a lot of times alone to pray. We see that in Mark chapter 1. We get to Mark chapter 2. We see Jesus took time to speak to the crowds. But if you go through the Gospels, you find out that the bulk of his time was spent with a handful of men. That was his strategy to change the world. This handful of men called his disciples. In fact, in Mark, I mean, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 it says, he says to these disciples of his, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In fact, it's interesting, even some of Jesus' alone time was often with his men. Look what it says in Luke 9, 18. It says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, comma, the disciples were with him. I mean, after all, remember, he called them to be with him. Remember what it says in Mark three fourteen, He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. So again, Jesus was willing to bless the masses, but what drove his ministry was investing into these handful of men who would later lead the church after Jesus completes his redemptive work of dying on the cross and rising again, and then returns to the Father. So again, Jesus spent the bulk of his time with his disciples with the goal of making disciple makers. It's important that we get that. Jesus' goal was to make disciple makers, make disciples who make disciples. That was his goal. That was the divine strategy. That was what the smartest person ever decided to do, God in the flesh to reach the world. So Jesus spent the bulk of his time with his disciples with the goal of making disciple-makers. Now, what was so brilliant about this approach? What was so brilliant about this approach is that if it would have continued on and the baton would have never been dropped, the Great Commission would have been fulfilled a long, long time ago. Now, what is the Great Commission? Let's just make sure we know what we're talking about when I say the Great Commission. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven as the resurrected Christ, he says some last parting words to his disciples. He says this, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He's telling his disciples to go make disciples, who of course then will make other disciples. That was the plan. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All I commanded you. I looked up that word in Greek, all, you know what it means? It means all. <laughs> teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now what would have happened in history had that process come continued on, unbroken, without the church dropping the baton time and time again. What would have happened? Well, let's just do a simple little math problem here. Let's let's just say that the 12 apostles, of course, Judas being one of them, but he was replaced. Let's just say the 12 who start off and actually get the commission to make disciples who make disciples... Let's say that they actually accomplished that after one year. Instead of 12 after one year, you have 24. Let's just do the math. Then after two years, if they did it again, all 24 of them, then you have not 24, but after two years, 48. Then after three years of making disciples who make disciples, you have 96. After four years, 192. After five years, 384. You're thinking... 384, that's all. After five years of work and you got 7 billion people, hang in there. After six years, you have 768. After seven years, you have 1,536. Eight years, 3,072. Nine years, 6,144. Ten years, you have 12,000. 12,000 disciples who make disciples. Okay, now let's keep going because after 11 years, 24,000, 12, 49,000, 13, 98,000, 14 years, 197,000, 15 years, 393,000, you're thinking, but there's 7 billion people. Hang in there. 16 years, if, if, if the baton is not dropped, 16 years, 786,000, 17 years, 1 million, 572,000, but you're thinking, but there's 7 billion people. But if you're producing disciples who make disciples, it goes on. 18 years, 3 million. 19 years, 6 million. 20 years, 12 million. 21 years, 25 million. 22 years, 50 million. 23 years, 100 million. 24 years, 200 million. 25 years, 400 million. 26 years, 800 million. 27 years, 1 billion. 610 million. Disciples who make disciples. 28 years, 3 billion. 29 years, 6 billion. Of course, just 30 years. If, he, if, it's, if the cycle was unbroken, you'd have well over the population of the earth. And it's been 2,000 years since Christ gave this commission. So, what happened? Why didn't they continue with this brilliant divine strategy? Well, the answer is that somewhere along the line, the disciples somewhere along the line dropped the baton. Now, I use the word baton. Think about a relay race and track and field. One runner runs with a baton. Just have a visual here. He runs with the baton. He hands it to the next runner. The next runner takes it, and he runs his, he runs his lap, and he hands it to the next runner. The next runner takes it, runs his lap. next runner takes it home. If that, if that baton is dropped, any time during that relay, they're disqualified. They cannot win a medal. Well, somewhere along the line, what could have been done in 30 years after 2,000 years hasn't been done. Why? Because the church keeps dropping the baton. And not making disciple, disciples who make disciples. Now, the Apostle Paul understood how this works and how important the strategy was. And as he laid in a Roman dungeon, in chains, facing the death penalty, realizing he was facing martyrdom, about to be beheaded, what was on his mind as he laid there in that dark, damp dungeon was the drift of the church. So he writes his young companion, his son in the faith, because he led Timothy to Christ. He writes him with an urgency, his very last epistle, Timothy. Here's what it's going to take. What it's going to take is the producing of disciple-making disciples. Paul knew that. The church had been drifting away from that, and he, wants to, he pulls it back to that. So here's what he says. Let's go to chapter 2 of Timothy. This is our third week in this five-week series of 2 Timothy, Paul's last epistle, and most I think most urgent one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You, therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right there you have four generations. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men to others also. And then on and on. Well, the question is, did they do it? Did they do it? Well, somewhere along the line, we don't know how long they did it, but somewhere along the line, they dropped the baton again. How do we know that? Well, we, just, we know that from church history and what happened to the church in that region. Now, why do they drop the baton? Why has a church throughout church history stopped producing disciples who make other disciples? What, why has the church dropped the baton so much? The answer is very simple. Is because it's so hard to do. It's hard to do. The cost to making disciples who make disciples is very hard. That's why Paul says what he says next, verse three. 2 Timothy chapter two, verse three, he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I mean, once Paul gives Timothy the charge to make disciples who make disciples, the very next thing he says is, share in suffering. Suffer hardship. Now think about this. Paul wasn't in prison for being a Christian. Paul was not in prison just because, you know, if he he had just loved Jesus and kept it to himself, he wouldn't be in prison. That's not why people go to prison. Around the world today, that's not why Christians are persecuted today. It's not primarily for loving Jesus and keeping it to yourself. That is not what gets you locked up. What got Paul locked up and what gets disciples locked up today is when you are fruitful and multiplying your life in the lives of others. You are producing disciple-making disciples. So the Apostle Paul realizes it's hard to do. That's why the church keeps dropping the baton. It's hard to do. So before he dies, he wants to make sure Timothy gets this. He wants to make sure Timothy will not drop the baton. There's an urgency there, and so Paul is going to give six metaphors about what it's going to take to be be producing disciples who make disciples. And I don't know any other place in the Bible where there are six metaphors given back to back to back to back to make a point. But Paul does it right here because he wants Timothy to understand, here's what it's going to take, Timothy, for you and for others who are going to produce disciple-making disciples. First metaphor, very next verse. He says, we are to be like good soldiers. Verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So a good soldier is dedicated, and he shows his dedication or her dedication in a willingness to do two things. I think, number one, a willingness to suffer, and number two, a willingness to concentrate concentrate on the mission. I mean, soldiers who go on active duty today, they don't expect an, a safe and easy time. When you're being deployed, you're not expecting this is sure going to be safe and easy. You expect hardship. You expect there's some risk. You expect there's going to be potentially some suffering as a matter of course. Because these things are part and partial of a soldier's calling. You understand that. So a soldier understands this is important, this war, and it it matters that that I go into it being willing to to take on hardship. So again, the soldier must be willing to concentrate and to suffer. And Paul says you must be willing to free yourself from civilian affairs. You can't give yourself to soldiering if you are entangled in civilian affairs, he says. Back during World War II, Tracy and I have a friend who's still alive in Belgium. Her name is Maggie. She's in her late 80s right now, approaching 90. But she was a little girl in Belgium during World War II, and she told us a story, what it was like to grow up with bombs blowing up all around in the air. And and she said that what she remembers, she remembers that they only had so much water, and so they used the water for cooking. But then they used the same water they used for cooking they used for bathing. Then the same water they use for bathing, they use for washing the clothes. Then the same water they use for washing the clothes, they use for washing the floor. And then she says, one time I complained to my mother about it. My mother said, there's a war on, Maggie. And that answered it. That explained it. That explains the need for sacrifice. You're in a war. You know, there are some, you know, there's some sacrifices that have to be made. And, and of course, the, the analogy is obvious. We're in a spiritual war. We have been called to be soldiers in this war, all of us. We're, not, we're an army, not an audience. We're an army. And that means that we've got to be willing to sacrifice for the cause. It's going to take sacrifice for all of us. So we've got to be willing to sacrifice, and we've got to be willing to concentrate for the cause. That means making disciples, who make disciples must become one of the most important things of our life. And that means we've got to be willing to give ourselves to it to such an extent that we will not get entangled in the affairs of civilian life. I mean, we, can't, we cannot do everything. As a church, if we're going to fulfill our mission, we can't do everything all our neighbors are doing. We can't. We can't be in every sporting thing, in every recital, in every extracurricular activity in the whole, that's going on in the community and make disciples. We can't. He's saying, we we are in a war, and it's going to take a soldier mentality of not being entangled in civilian affairs if we're going to make disciple-producing disciples. But throughout church history, the church has gotten entangled over and over again in civilian affairs, just living like everybody else. And what happens is time and time again, the baton gets dropped. Instead of 30 years, it's 2,000 years, and we still haven't got it done. So Jesus has enlisted us as soldiers in a war of making disciple, disciples who make disciples. And we've been enlisted by him, so our first and foremost responsibility is to please the one who enlisted us. It seems we chose him, but he actually chose us. He enlisted you in this war, and Jesus did. But we live in an age of so many distractions, you know. And not only will disciple making be sidelined if we smartphone and entertain ourselves to death, but if that's not it, believe me, the devil has plenty other distractions to offer us. But we have to please the one who enlisted us, Jesus. We are bombarded by so many time wasting opportunities. And some of these aren't necessarily evil. They're just, they might even appear good, good, healthy initiatives, but they're causing us to drop the baton and decide, I don't have time to make a disciple-producing disciple. I don't have time to invest in someone's life. I don't have time to meet with them and, and pray for them and get to know them and help them through issues and help them learn things. I don't have time for that because I have all these civilian affairs. But Paul's saying, no, we've been enlisted in a war that we've got to make time for the most important things that we're supposed to do. And that is make disciple-producing disciples. You know, there's another aspect of disciple-making comes to mind, and that is selection. You know, Jesus chose the 12. Think about it. He chose the 12, and there were hundreds and thousands of others that would have greatly benefited if he had chosen them for that three-year investment. But he chose those 12 You know, in disciple making, our aim is to please Jesus. and So even in selection, we need to think about, Lord, who are you asking me to invest in? And by the way, since we're trying to please the one who enlisted us, it might mean that we don't please everyone else, right? You might even have someone mad at you. I I don't think a week goes by that someone's not mad at me. But I got to make sure, I got to live to please the one who enlisted me. So you got to make choices with your time. Where are you going to invest it? Where are you going to spend it? Let me say a word to those of you who need an older, more mature man, if you're a man or a woman, if you're a woman, to invest in your life. Let me give you some advice. I'd, I'd, my advice to you would, would be to do what I did. When I became a Christian in college, the two uh, more mature believers on the track team that really impacted my life were both being disciple. They are both seniors about to graduate. and I was, I was finishing my sophomore year in and they're about to graduate, and they're being discipled by a statistics professor, a very godly man at the university. And so I went to the statistics professor, and I said, I want you to disciple me. And he said, he said You got to wait a year. He said, Because I'm going to spend next year with these, you know, these two men, and then after that, I'll have time for you. And, but I wouldn't leave him alone. I kept pestering him. And I kept pestering him. And so he gave me some books to read and stuff and kind of didn't have time for me and I kept coming back, coming back, till finally he took me on the next couple of years and discipled me. So my advice to you, particularly young people who need an older man or woman to invest in your life, pester them. Yes. Yes. Just pester them. Say, so I need you to invest in my life. Ask. Don't sit around and wait for someone to ask you. So those of you who really know you need to be investing, asking God about investing. But those of you who need, know, know you need to be invested, don't just sit around waiting. Pursue it because one of the things that always got my attention is the person who is hungry. You know, the person who's hungry and after it, most people are going to say, Yeah, I see that hunger in you. I want to invest in you. So we got to be like soldiers. We have to approach disciple making you know, disciple approach by willing to endure hardship, to focus, to not be entangled in a civilian affairs. That's crucial. That's where it starts. But Paul doesn't stop there. Remember, he's going to go through six metaphors. Number two. The second one, we have to be like athletes. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.5. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So now the Apostle Paul turns from the image of the Roman soldier... To the image of the Greek competitor in the Greek games. And everyone knew that no athlete will win the prize without discipline and training. That's the obvious point of the metaphor. Without discipline and training, you cannot win. So if we're going to be effective in producing disciple making disciples, then we have got to avail ourselves to training, discipline and training. You know, if if you're serious about really being a disciple-producing, you know, you know, you know, producing disciple makers, if you, you want to be effective in that, then it's somehow it's got to be reflective in your schedule. And by the way, we offer all these training times all the time at church. Things like multiply and launch, and and so many think I'd like to take that. I don't have time. Why? Because we're so entangled in civilian affairs. So untangle yourself and you know, as a good soldier, and then be trained as a good athlete in making disciples. Another thing that comes to mind as an athlete is it's going to require energy. If, I'm, if we're going to be producing disciple-making disciples, then it's going to take energy. I can't tell you how many thousands of early mornings and late nights I've spent one-on-one with somebody. I mean, thousands of hours, short nights, early mornings. It takes energy. And I think about 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, where Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Amen. See, we've got to be willing to say, I'm, I'm, God, I'm willing to spend and be spent if I'm going to really produce disciple-making disciples. So it's going to cost us our comfort. It's going to cost us our time. And by the way, there's, there's a cost, too, here that I want to add to it. it. It's costly to speak the truth into somebody's life. Because sometimes you've got to say things that are hard to say, and they got to hear things they don't want to hear. But I thought to myself many times, if I don't say it to them, who's going to say it? The answer is usually comes to mind, there's no one. There's no one else who's going to say it to them. They're just not going to do it. But if they don't hear it, if they don't hear what they need to hear, how are they going to grow? So we've got to invest in life and have that and build that relationship and that trust where you can say those things. And then you can teach the things they need to be taught. But Paul's still not done. He gives a third metaphor. He says we have to be like hardworking farmers. 2 Timothy 2.6. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. You know, some of you grew up on farms. I've talked to you about it. Hard work is indispensable to good farming. I mean, good farming does take skill, but it takes a lot of sweat and hard work. Growing up, my father was in the Air Force, and we traveled about every four years. We moved somewhere around the world, and so we only saw... My, my folks relatives every four or five years. And we have have cousins that own a farm in Illinois and so we'd be dropped off at the farm for a week of fun. <laughs> and so the first night, you know, I'm asleep and all of a sudden they're waking me up and it's dark outside. I'm thinking it's dark, what time is it? Four in the morning. We go to milk the cow. We milk the cow in a pail. We bring the pail to the kitchen. We set it down. We get a ladle, and we have breakfast with our cereal from the milk of the cow. And then we start working, and we work till it's dark. And we did it for a week, and we had so much fun at the farm. <laughs> but just like farming, discipleship, if there's, no, there's no gains if there's not some pains. And that's the reality. There's not some automatic application, you know, there's not like an app for discipleship. I wish there was, you know, there's an app for that. You know, the app for discipleship, know what it is? It's you. God's clicking on you. You're the app. Let me say a couple more things about this metaphor of farming. Farmers needed to maintain their fields. A farmer didn't just throw a seed out and go, hope that works. I mean, the next day he is tending to it. He's watering it. He's cultivating it. You know, if we're going to actually make a disciple-producing disciple, it's going to take a real investment of our time and nurture and continue to develop another person, spend time and commitment to them in that relationship. Also, another thing about farming is farming takes patience. You know, farmers don't see results for months sometimes. So what do they do? They patiently wait to see the crops grow. Most Christians give up on each other way too quick. Well, I told them that and they didn't do it, so I'm done with them. You know, it takes us really being patient with each other, patient in in producing disciple, making disciples. Another thing it takes is initiative. You know, a farmer doesn't sit on the back porch and go, I sure hope something sprouts back there. I a farmer gets off the porch, he takes initiative. And I think some of you are hung up on the initiative part. Some of you know you ought to be investing in someone else's life, and you're just thinking, you know, it'd be awkward to have the conversation. I don't want to deal with the awkwardness. And so you go another day, another week, another month, another year without doing it. And we've got to just say, you know what, I've got to take the initiative. The initiative is is crucial you might be thinking, but I don't have all the answers. You don't need to know all the answers. I can't tell you how many times I've said to somebody, good question. Can I get back to you on that one? But then you go and find the answer, and you never forget that answer. I tell people now that I've never heard a question just once. Every question I've ever heard, I've heard many times. Why? Because there's only so many questions. And, if you, and you get involved yourself in talking to people who have, have good questions, and I tell people there are no stupid questions. You got a question, I'll do my best to answer it. If I don't know the answer, I'll go find it. But that's how you learn. So in the process of investing in someone else's life, you're growing, and you're developing. And so just, it's a matter of just saying, you know what, I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to invest the time. I'm going to love somebody else. I'm going to take the time, just like a farmer, and I'm going to plant the seed, I'm going to water it, I'm going to fertilize it, I'm going to harvest it, I'm going to be involved relationally. So it's not just one meeting that is done, it's going to be meeting after meeting, time after time. Relationship to really make a disciple producing disciple, which is what the goal is. So the progress, just like farming, doesn't happen all at once. It's going to happen over time, but you, if you do it, you will see a harvest. You will see it happen. Paul's not done. Metaphor number four. He says, we have to be like unashamed workmen. Let's go to verse 15. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So the good workmen, we handle accurately the word of truth. The word of truth, of course, is the word of God. It's the apostolic teaching Paul is passing on to Timothy. It's what we have in our Bibles. That is the word of truth. The good workman, literally, the translation is cuts a path in a straight direction. The point being, he makes it easy for the traveler to get to his destination. Otherwise, we make it easy for people to understand the truth of the Word of God. In order for us to be able to do that, we've got to be good students of it ourselves. It's going to take time to learn it so we can communicate it clearly. We can communicate the gospel clearly. Every Christian ought to be able to communicate the gospel. Gospel means good news, good news of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, Son of God came, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died on the cross, bore all our sins, absorbed our judgment, rises again to victory. We repent and believe in him as Savior and Lord. That's the gospel. It took me 10 seconds. Every Christian ought to be able to, to share the gospel and share it in your testimony, your personal testimony. Personal testimony is real simple. What was your life, what was your life like before Christ? How did you come to Christ? What's your life like after Christ? You ought to be able to do that in three minutes. You ought to be able to sit down with somebody and say, hey, get to know them, introduce yourself, ask about their family, ask about their occupation. In fact, I use a little acrostic, the letter form, family, occupation. R stands for religion, M stands for message. So I say, I ask about their family. They talk about their family. I ask about their occupation. They talk about their occupation. I ask, do you have any religious background? They talk about that. A lot of times they say, do you? I say, a little, and I talk about that. But then I say, Can I tell you my story? I'm not preaching. I'm telling my story. Then I tell my personal testimony in three minutes. Actually, I have a one-minute version, three-minute version, 30-minute version. So (laughs) depends how much time I got. But but we all need need to be able to do that. And some of you have never taken the time to sit down and just write it out. Write out your story. And then think about, how can I communicate that in a simple, clear way to somebody? It's your story. But think it through and be able to effectively communicate it. So we need to be like, these, you know, unashamed workmen who study the Bible, can tell the truth, can share the gospel, can tell our story. All right, fifth, fifth metaphor. We have to be like clean vessels. Second Timothy 2.20 and 21. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to dishonor and some to, um, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, listen to this, if a man cleanses himself from these things, He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Think about this now. There are vessels of gold and silver, he says, are for noble use. Some of you have special, you know, plates and glasses you only take out for special occasions. That's what he's talking about. There's these special vessels of gold and silver that are for noble use and were used for the service of the master. It's like when the master's at the table, let's get out the special stuff. But there's also, there was these vessels of wood and earthenware, which were not so noble, and they were used back in the kitchen. The great house he's talking about is the church, the visible church. The vessels he's referring to in this metaphor is us. He's saying, if anyone purifies himself, he will be a vessel for noble use. Why? Because God wants to use clean vessels. He goes on to say, you'll be consecrated, that means set apart, useful to the master, ready for any good work. Wow. I mean, think about it. There is no higher calling imaginable than the Lord wants to use you as an instrument. He wants to use you as a vessel in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your places of recreation, your family. He wants to use you, but what he wants to do is use a clean vessel. In fact, let me illustrate this. Is anybody here like coconut cream pie? Anyone over here? Okay, come up here. Let's see, who raised their hand back here? Oh, well, come on up, come on, whoever's, whoever's first gets up All right, come here. All right. Okay, so you like coconut cream pie? All right, awesome. You guys are getting hungry out there, aren't you? I had people mad at me at first, sir, because I didn't give them a chance to get up here. Okay, this is coconut cream pie. I tell you what, I just, I'll test it. This is a clean fork. I just want to make sure I don't give you anything bad. That's really good. You want? The, you want it? Sure. Okay, I got another. I got another fork for you. Okay, here's another fork. I need another volunteer here. <laughs> all right, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna give you a clean fork and a pie, but he, he did it all wrong, but go ahead, go back here and say it. Now, how many of you would have declined the fork right then? Okay, most of you would decline the fork that was dirty now, okay. That's my point here. My point is we would rather use clean vessels, wouldn't we? And God is the same way. And so, here's the truth. The truth is, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So keep short accounts with God. I got coconut in my mouth. <laughs> keep short accounts with God. Be quick to confess sin right away. Be clean vessels that God can use. Useful to the master. That's what we need to be. If we want to really be producing disciple. Who make disciples. Okay, last metaphor, we have to be like the Lord's servant. Second Timothy two, twenty four through twenty-six. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So the fundamental characteristic of the quote-unquote Lord's servant is gentleness. In fact, the first word used here, epios, means mild. It is the same word that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, of a nurse taking care of children. That's how it is in discipleship. The second word is anexicacus, and that means bearing evil without resentment. That means that you go ahead and bear up the shortcomings and and the foolishness of the person you're you're dealing with because you want to help them through all that. And then the third word is politis, and that is basically the word for meekness and humility. And so when you think of that, the servant of the Lord, you think it, it all sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? In fact, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, gives us a description of what Jesus was going to be like when he comes. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A Listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break. Aren't you glad Jesus is like that? And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. You know, Jesus was gentle and humble in heart. In fact, he even describes himself that way. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. So that same meekness and gentleness is to characterize us if we're going to be effective in producing disciples who make disciples. And here's what will happen. The result will be this, 2 Timothy two twenty six. And they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You know, so many are held captive by so many lies of the devil. And the devil is likened like a hunter who captures his quarry live in a clever snare or trap. That's the picture here. And then he actually even drugs them. Because the word used here of enabling them to escape is the same word for making them sober. In other words, they come to their senses. They come out of this drugness that they were in under the devil's, devil's spell. And so this is, this is the kind of thing, part, that's all part of discipleship, setting people free to move on in sanctification and then learning the skills of producing other disciples. It's going to take gentleness and humility and meekness. So looking over all these metaphors, let me summarize it for you. We have to be, if we're going to produce disciple-making disciples... Then it means we got to be as good soldiers and as a rule-abiding athletes, as hard-working farmers, which means we've got to be dedicated to our work. We've got to be willing to be trained. We've got to be disciplined and hard-working to bear fruit. Can't be entangled in all these other things. We've got to be focused and be willing to work hard. Also, we have to be like unashamed workmen. We must be accurate and clear with the word of truth. We need to be vessels for noble use. We must be clean vessels. And thirdly, we must be meek and gentle as the Lord's servant. And so God can use us. And our effectiveness of producing disciples and make disciples has everything to do with how much we line up with these metaphors. It'll make us very effective. And by the way, we have been given this great commission. You know what? If, if all the Christians in the whole world right now would just take this great commission seriously for five years, in five years, if all the Christians in the world would really take it seriously, and I think we'd be done. Ten years for sure. You know, in, in 2008, two weeks before the Olympics, Tracy and I were in Beijing, China. China the day before we were about to be hidden and spend time with Chinese pastors in the house church movement underground, we, uh, we had some time in Beijing, and I said, I, I'd like to see where all the Olympics are going to be, even though we're not going to be at them. I'd like to see the buildings. So we got a cab to take us around the stadiums where the Olympics were going to be in two weeks, 2008. And I thought, in in two weeks, there are going to be people screaming in all these stadiums from all over the world. I just thought about that. And two weeks later, I was was watching my favorite event in the Olympics, which was uh, track and field. And one of my favorite events is the 400-meter relay. Now, the 400-meter relay is, you know, you, you just... The, each runner runs just 100 meters, and he's full out. He's full out, and he's got to come back with his baton real quick, and as soon as he snaps it back, that guy's got to be ready to grab it, and then he takes off to his 100 meters, and he, and he snaps it, and the other person's got to grab it and go. And, and if you drop it, you're disqualified. It doesn't matter if you're the fastest four in the world. You drop it, you're not going to get a medal. Okay, so here's what happened in 2008 as I'm watching that. Both... The men's American 400-meter team and the women's 400-meter team, both of them dropped the baton. All that training, all that talent, all that speed, but they dropped the baton, so there's no medals. What's interesting is four years earlier in Athens, the Americans were supposed to win easily, but they, they couldn't get the baton pass right, and Great Britain wins the medal. And then the women dropped the baton again disqualified now it doesn't seem by the way this is really a pvc pipe i didn't have a baton handy but it looks something like this here's the deal it's not it's not hard to pass this thing i mean it's smooth it's about 12 inches you just pass you just got to get it but if you don't if you don't pass it on if you don't take it and carry it to the next person you cannot win and that's just the same is true with the Great Commission. Here's what the deal is the Great Commission, what is writing on it, is whether or not we pass the baton. So I want to close with one simple question to you Who are you going to pass the baton to? Who? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we pray that we wouldn't be able to shake off this message. I pray, Lord, we wouldn't be able to forget it over lunch or forget it when we go to bed tonight. I pray, Lord, there would be something deep you do in our, our lives right now, the realization of what we've been called to. And those, Lord, who really, really are trained and would be great disciple makers themselves and just been on the sidelines, Lord, that even right now you're calling them back to it. Pray you just call them back to those, Lord, who say, you know, I need someone to disciple me, Lord, that you would would just make those connections now. And Lord, those who need training, Lord, that they would be willing to avail themselves to it. So we're just praying, Lord, would you take us, all of us, to a place where, because right now I believe, Lord, you, you, you gave an image in many people's minds right now, you gave a picture of somebody. And so, Lord, I pray that those pictures would burn deep in our hearts of people that you are calling us, that you are selecting for us to really invest into and just really help them grow and help them learn how to make disciples who make disciples. So our prayer is, Lord, you'd speed things up on the earth, not just for our church, but church around the world, Lord, would really, would really take seriously, again, the Great Commission. And Lord, we'd see it fulfilled in our lifetime. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Again, before we dismiss, there will be some people down front, some leaders. That we want to pray for you. Also, we have Grace Cafe. It Be a great, great time to go over, have lunch, and pester somebody. You know, make some connections, some selection. Also, we have Grace Cafe. We have a connection coffee and corners. We'd love to answer any questions you have. God bless you. You're dismissed.